0: Imagine running a highway through Washington Square Park. Could have happened. Urban planner Robert Moses put the idea on the table in the 1950s. But then Jane Jacobs intervened. The urbanist and activist led the successful fight against the four-lane highway, as well as other Robert Moses projects. Jacobs was opposed to the kind of city planning that involves big development and urban renewal projects that tear down old communities. She's best known for her book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. Jacobs' ideas have often been met with criticism from developers and city planners, but a lot of planning experts agree that her work helped to shape modern thinking about cities. I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape. Jane Jacobs would have turned 100 years old on May 4th. Several activities are planned in New York City and beyond this month to celebrate her life and legacy, including an event called Jane's Walk
1: which is a weekend of free, volunteer-led neighborhood walking tours that pay tribute to Jane's legacy through getting people out onto the streets, talking to their neighbors, and kind of looking at the city and perceiving the city through fresh eyes.
0: More on what's planned to celebrate the centennial of Jane Jacobs' birth coming up. But first, Greg Lindsay, a senior fellow with the New Cities Foundation, recently spent some time at Fordham University talking about the legacy of Jane Jacobs. Lindsay is a busy man. He speaks frequently about globalization, innovation, and the future of cities. But he kindly carved some time out of his schedule to drop into our studio for a conversation. Greg, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for having me. So you're a bit consumed these days with Jane Jacobs, huh?
2: She turns she would have turned 100 years old on May 4th, uh, and that weekend will be celebrated with Jane's walks across the country and around the world, celebrating her legacy. What is her legacy? Well, Jane Jacobs is obviously most famous for her book, The Death and Life of American Cities, and really her battles against Robert Moses in the 1950s and 60s to defend Washington Square Park and Soho against freeways that would have destroyed lower Manhattan as we know it. But I'm really interested in, in Jane as, a, as really sort of a, a prototypical economist and thinker about complex systems. Her legacy really expands beyond the built environment into uh, physicists, into economics, thinking about what makes innovation happen. Um, she was really a, a sort of a polymath. And her later books, which never had the same readership, um, really pushed into a lot of different areas that are poorly understood.
0: So why do you think it is that she was then pigeonholed into that one area specifically about urban planning when there was this whole other world that she was involved with.
2: Well, Death and Life is a, is a masterpiece. It's a, it's a wholly original piece of thinking, and it's poetic, and it's beautiful, and, and I think it's easy for anyone to read and understand. Why do we love being in cities? What makes the village beautiful? She was really the first to explain that, and I think it still resonates after all this time. But, you know, also, I mean, she was only ever a journalist, which is, as a journalist myself, is partly why I'm enchanted with her is because, you know, by sheer force of her thinking and personality, um, she carved out niches for herself, ultimately, in economics and elsewhere. But, um, but, you know, those are mathematical fields. I mean, the physicists who who love her work and are looking into why cities get better as they get bigger, um, they describe themselves as doing Jane Jacobs, but with the math.
0: No doubt. It's interesting that Jane Jacobs didn't have a degree related to pretty much anything that she was writing about, right? Well,
2: again, as a journalist, that's what I love about it. I mean, I have a bachelor's in journalism myself and nothing else. So, yeah, I mean, she was, you know, she was an autodidact. And and the thing, and you know, death and life is really grounded in observation. I mean, her most famous sentences about, you know, the ballet of the sidewalks, about how the village functioned, it was all based on personal observation. And that really was ultimately her greatest weapon against Robert Moses to protect the village, is that Moses, of course, was a master planner from who looked down on the city from 35,000 feet up, proverbially, uh, who never drove a day in his life. He had a driver that took him on, on the various freeways and parkways that he built. And, you know, and she combated him by using observation to show what makes a great neighborhood. And it wasn't freeways. It wasn't building towers in the park. It wasn't any of the plans that he advocated as the master builder.
0: She observed the people and how the people used the city. Yes, and
2: to this day, a lot of her observations hold up. I think some of it's been oversimplified. I mean, a lot of people will tell you if you want to make a great neighborhood, just have very short blocks. We were discussing today that you know she claimed the Upper West Side could never be a great neighborhood because the blocks are too long, which sounds a little absurd today. But yeah, she she was the one who really uh, you know pushed the idea that we have to observe how people actually inhabit space, how we experience and live it. Versus just breaking it down to, you know, pure engineering formulas. So what are
0: the benefits of short blocks in a city? Well, it's not
2: the shortness. It's about the diversity of uses and the diversity of encounters that happen to them. And, and that to me is the interesting thing. I think part of the reason why we embrace Jane so strongly to this day is is because we live in cities and we understand that cities are places of incredibly diverse encounters and concentration. We we now live in in, in, a, in a safe, prosperous city where we strive to maximize the number of people that we will see out, you know, out in public. Um, That was never true, of course, in the 1960s and 70s as the city declined. You know, there's no there's no fear anymore. Um, So I think, you know, really, we live in like this sort of like afterlife of what what Jane was describing. The idyllic form of the West Village, which was a, a pocket world at the time, is now really the
0: city as we know it. Robert Moses also wanted wide open parks and boulevards, and Jane Jacobs says not a good idea.
2: Well, the interesting thing about Moses, you know, he has been overly vilified, I think. Uh, I'm not Fully prepared to defend a lot of what he did, but he did build a lot of necessary housing. He did build a lot of park space, built incredible beaches of it. And I think at the time it all made sense uh, in some regard, you know, in the sense of, you know, when the city was seen to be falling apart, he was trying to preserve the region and protect it um, and, and all those sorts of things. I think what he did made sense to himself. But, you know, it's just simply not the era in which we live now. I mean, now and, and partly because we don't need to drive from our homes in Long Island to the city. I mean, to, to traverse these distances, we have devices that do that for us. Like, I think because of the supercomputers we carry in our pockets now, um, we strive to be in intense, small, intimate face to face experiences because we can connect globally to anybody we need to. And that's changed. That has nothing to do with with Jacobs and Moses of the time we we are the beneficiaries of that.
0: And so is the city. Jane Jacobs came from Scranton, Pennsylvania, not even a native New Yorker.
2: And she watched that city die. I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, Jane's experiences, uh, you know, in in New York City and, and what makes a great place, I think, was formed by, you know, part of seeing Scranton sort of fall apart and seeing it as a, as a classic industrial monoculture. Um, just as an aside, my favorite uh, passage in Jane Jacobs' work is in uh, her 1969 book, The Economy of Cities, where she predicted that Detroit would die, which was two years after the riots, so there was that, but she understood that Detroit had become an industrial monoculture, that there was no more innovation happening outside of the big three, and that it was ultimately doomed. And that was an incredibly counterintuitive take at the time, and it was absolutely right. And now it's part of the accepted mantra about, you know, startups and bottom-up industries and, and leaving enough space for new opportunities and new fields to form.
0: Where do you think Jane Jacobs would be setting her sights today in New York City if she were still around what i would love to know is what her thoughts would be about the super tall skyscrapers on
2: 57th street the part where her books leave off i think is you know she was formed by her times in which she was struggling against you know the personification of big government in robert moses and her writings leave us very little I think, to talk about, you know, all of the foreign wealth that's poured into the city, how it manifests itself in super tall towers, um, how that leads to trickle down displacement. We have entire neighborhoods that are now de facto empty because their buyers are elsewhere. I would love to know how she would both interpret that and combat it. How do you protest hot money flows into New York? Um, obviously, I think that the Treasury Department's looking into this now about how we're going to start uh, uh, taxing this or at least stopping some of it. But um, but yeah, I, you know, how do we deal with a gilded city? You know, what would Jane Jacobs have thought about Bloomberg's New York? Um, obviously, she was alive through part of it, but the full legacy of it, you know, of him wishing that all the billionaires would move here. I would love to know what she thought about that because I, I don't think she would be uh, I don't think she would have
0: embraced it. Speaking of protests, Jane Jacobs protested to the point of getting arrested in New York City. Yeah, it would be great to see what she
2: would have thought of Occupy as well and Black Lives Matter. I mean, she famously moved to Canada in part because she did not want to see her son, who is an architect now, uh, did not want to see him drafted for the Vietnam War. So, you know, I mean, and Jane did believe, and I think this is particularly where her left wing uh, supporters buy into it, is that, you know, she did believe that cities were also places for protest and places where people could come together to 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 argue, to debate, to have those conversations, not simply, you know, outdoor shopping malls or cafes, you know, we, we see the city today as a, essentially a gilded park to enjoy. And, and I think she embraced the, 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 the struggles that also should happen in cities, too.
0: She got arrested at a city council hearing. Am I right? Yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure I recall the complete story of it. But yeah, she certainly stood up to government her own way. So when you're talking with students about Jane Jacobs, what kinds of questions do they have? How much do they actually know about her?
2: Um, I think they know the, the rough outlines of the story. And I, I think it's somewhat of a caricature. I mean, I always refer to her sometimes as St. Jane. And, like, you know, we can almost think of it as Stations of the Cross, you know, of, of the various moments of her battles with Moses. Um, what I find interesting is, you know, a lot of them are fairly sympathetic to Moses. I mean, a lot of them are sympathetic to the notion of, of course, cars are part of the landscape. And of course, we should have we should have built highways somewhere. Um, and it's true that when you delve into it, you know, I certainly didn't want to be in Moses' shoes. Which neighborhood do you demolish? Because you think the good of the region needs it. But, you know, it, it's interesting because, of course, you know, millennials and, and and Generation Z, you know, they're the generation behind them, um, you know, in their youth are all embracing the city. And of course, coming to you universities like Fordham. Um and it'll be very interesting to me to see whether they follow their parents' footsteps and go back to the suburbs just like the boomers did. I think many of them will, most of them will. Um it'll be interesting to see if a certain percentage, a significant enough one decides to remain in cities.
0: You had told me that you recently took students on a walk around Jane Jacobs' old Greenwich Village neighborhood.
2: We did. We went last night to the White Horse Tavern in the village and, and looked across the street where her apartment was and had a few beers and talked about, you know, uh, the legacy of urbanism. And and what I think is interesting, too, is, you know, with students who are from Jakarta, from Los Angeles, uh, from China, you know, in this class, you know, we talked about the fact that you know the future isn't Greenwich Village, actually. The future... It'll be interesting, is is the future Jane Jacobs? Because so much of the built landscape that's emerging uh, in places like, you know, in Jakarta and Beijing, you know, don't resemble narrow streets and small blocks. They are these huge developments. But I do think where her legacy is most important is, is that when we talk about... You know the future of humanity is an urban species. You know half of us live in cities, and that percentage will rise by 2050. The vast majority of that will be slums. And Jane talked a lot about in Death and Life about you know how slums can naturally unslum themselves. We don't need to bulldoze. We don't need to intervene. We have to give the opportunity and the dignity to the people living in those slums and give them the opportunity to build their own homes by hand. And, you know, that legacy still resonates in the people I talked to in Daravi and Kibera, um, you know, in, in the efforts to figure out, you know, how do we turn slums and favelas into, you know, beautiful places. You know, these are obviously areas of opportunity, but they have terrible hygiene. They have terrible health. Um, And so, you know, the challenge is, is how do we turn those into great places without bulldozing them? And no one's cracked that yet. Jane only begins to give us the hint of an outline.
0: Greg, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Greg Lindsay is a senior fellow with the New Cities Foundation. Jane Jacobs fought hard to preserve her Greenwich Village neighborhood, but the battle to keep the historic community intact continues today. Andrew Berman is the executive director of the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation. He joins me now on the phone. Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. So what words come to mind when I say the name Jane Jacobs?
3: Well, Jane Jacobs was a pioneer. Um, she was an incredibly powerful advocate for preservation and for vital cities and vital communities. Um, she really blazed uh, a trail in terms of saying that the way in which we plan the fate of our neighborhoods in our communities shouldn't be done from a top-down manner, which was really um, the way things were done in the mid-20th century, the sort of Robert Moses style, but that it should really uh, emanate from the communities themselves, and that there was a great wisdom in the sort of randomness and diversity of the way in which um, neighborhoods and city streets worked, uh, the way people, the sort of messy clutter of people on streets and uh, people hanging out windows and different kind of uses juxtaposed with one another, Um, instead of trying to uh, eliminate that and have these rigidly planned um, cities with big high-rises and dead open space around them, um, she really felt that we should have uh, vital, mixed, spontaneous communities um, and that those were both the most economically successful and the safest places um, for people to live.
0: Did you ever have a chance to meet Jane Jacobs?
3: Um, I did not, um, although she did remain connected to the organization until her passing. She was a member of our board of advisors. We did do an oral history with her, which is um, available on our website for people to um, access. So, uh, though I never had the privilege of meeting her personally, um, for anybody involved with uh, the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation, and really for anybody involved with, um, community issues in Greenwich Village or preservation in New York City, you can't help but feel as though Jane Jacobs was a very palpable presence in uh, your life and your work. Um, and I certainly uh, felt that way. And, you know, even after her passing, um, you know, her presence feels as um, as powerful um, as ever.
0: Bottom line is you would have a highway running through Greenwich Village if it weren't for Jane Jacobs, Right.
3: Yes. We'd have a highway running through. We'd have much of the neighborhood demolished and replaced by um, high-rise housing developments. We would have cars uh, still going through Washington Square Park. Um, We'd have lost a lot of historic buildings. Um, You know, really, Lower Manhattan would not be recognizable. Um, But it's also important to remember that outside of the specific battles that she was uh, engaged with, which were incredibly important, um, her ideas so changed and so permeated the way we um, think about how uh, planning should take place in cities and how we should um, go about shaping our communities um, that uh, her impact, I think, can be felt far beyond the the boundaries of Greenwich Village and beyond the boundaries of uh, places that she'd ever even set foot um, because her ideas were so potent and so influential.
0: She lived on Hudson Street. Is her home still there? And if so, is it marked?
3: Uh, Her home is very much still there. And a couple of years ago, we got the street in front of her home uh, renamed Jane Jacobs Way. It's, uh, you know, sort of in typical fashion, it's that sort of small, um, non a script uh, house that you could easily um, overlook, uh, plain and simple, on Hudson Square, uh, Hudson Street, rather. but it's very much still there, and it's part of the Greenwich Village Historic District, which she worked very hard to get the city to enact. So uh, it should hopefully be there um, for many, many generations to come, and hopefully forever.
0: You mentioned that she was involved, but was she involved in the creation of the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation?
3: Well, she was definitely one of the first people um, who was involved uh, with GBSHP after its founding. Um, by that point, she had already moved to Canada, so but she stayed closely connected to various organizations and things that were going on in this community that she had made um, her home. And she would certainly come back and visit. Um, she would have speaking engagements and things of that nature. So um, you know, she was. Once she moved up to Toronto, she was very involved in uh, civic life up there and certainly involved in many battles uh, there as well. But the, the connection to the village um, remained uh, very, very real. And certainly there was a lot of communication between um, our organization and many other groups. Um, she was especially connected to folks involved with the West Village Houses, which uh, were really a result of her successful effort to block um, an urban renewal scheme um, for the Far West Village and to instead get these um, low-rise, much more contextual uh, uh, housing development uh, built in that neighborhood. And the folks from that community remain closely in touch with her for uh, for many years until her passing.
0: How much of Jane Jacobs' fight are you still fighting as an organization?
3: Um, uh, you know, I think that fight is ongoing and probably will never end. Uh, you know, certainly, the um the effort to try to maintain the scale and character and diversity um of our neighborhoods is a constant one um you know and whether it's large institutions like New York University or top down planning from city hall or powerful real estate interests who uh are more concerned with making uh um maximum profit in the short term and not about, you know, the long term of cultivating and maintaining a um, a healthy community, Um, that's a a fight we continue to have to fight. Um, You know, what's interesting is that in the interceding years, you know, she was originally kind of dismissed and uh marginalized and of course now her it's been so widely accepted uh the wisdom of her views that oftentimes we find the people that we are fighting um uh, try to appropriate her Uh, her words and her ideas and to cloak themselves in them, uh, which is an interesting irony. You know, for instance, when we were fighting NYU's massive 20-year expansion plan, um, the university would uh, frequently try to cite the the writings and the teachings and the philosophy of Jane Jacobs to try to justify their plans. So um, some things have changed, but some things remain very much the same.
0: If you could sit down with Jane Jacobs, Andrew, what would you want to ask her? What advice would you seek from her?
3: Uh, uh, gosh, there's so much. But, you know, one of the things that I would most want to ask her is uh, just how she went about um, leading the fights that she led when, uh, you know, this was a time period where the notion of uh, community up planning was really so foreign, um, so different from the way that things were done, um, and even just the idea that people in their communities that neighborhood leaders should have a say in determining their future. Um, You know, how she had the strength to really be able to put that forward, and particularly so given the time that she was a woman um, and that she wasn't formally trained in um, urban planning. um, These were all reasons why um, what she did and what she fought for was really dismissed and ignored um, until it couldn't be ignored anymore. Um, So I'd really love to know where that, um, that inspiration and that, um, that stamina and that, that chutzpah uh, really came from for her to be able to do that because it's pretty incredible. I mean, it's, it's an incredible thing to do now, but um, in the 1950s and 1960s, it was uh, even more so. Uh, you know, I, I, we're really proud here at H P and especially in Greenwich Village, um, having been the place where um, so many of her seminal ideas really germinated. Um, and it certainly informs uh, the way we go about the work that we do um, every single day. And we feel really fortunate to have her as such a significant part of our legacy.
0: Andrew, thanks so much for your time.
3: Thank you, George. I appreciate it.
0: That was Andrew Berman. He's the Executive Director of the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation. More info about the group at gvshp.org. Finally, a look at some of the events and activities planned in celebration of Jane Jacobs' 100th birthday. Stacey Anderson is the Director of Public Events and Community Engagement at the Municipal Art Society of New York. So, Stacy, what does MAS have in store to mark Jane Jacobs' 100th?
1: Yeah, so MAS is kind of one of the, you know, informal stewards of of Jane Jacobs' legacy. And this is actually the sixth year that we've celebrated something called Jane's Walk, which is a weekend of free, volunteer-led neighborhood walking tours that pay tribute to Jane's legacy through getting people out onto the streets, talking to their neighbors, and kind of looking at the city and perceiving the city through fresh eyes. Um, And so this weekend, or rather the first weekend of May, we have in excess of 250 walking tours um, lined up. Yeah, so it's the biggest and best Jane's Walk to date, obviously. Um, You know, people are excited about the fact that it's her 100th birthday and are are jazzed about the opportunity to participate. Um, But, yeah, it's grown exponentially over the course of, you know, these past five years. And um, whereas it started in Lower Manhattan, now it's in all five boroughs and really, you know, really runs the gamut in terms of content and format. Some are historical tours, some loc- are architectural, cultural, some are even, you know, scavenger hunts, public performances. So it's really all about the unique expression of urbanism, which is very Jacobsian, um, and she would have really appreciated that that's the way that, you know, cities celebrate her, her lasting legacy.
0: So give me a few examples, if you will, some specific walks that are on the agenda.
1: There's one reoccurring walk which I really love, which is a walk along the High Line that culminates in a public performance. That's kind of a duel between um, two individuals: one that dresses up as Robert Moses and one that dresses up as as Jane Jacobs. And they kind of go through the you know iconic um, battle over over the West Village or over the you know the lower. Um, Manhattan Expressway, and kind of what was at stake at the time when Jane Jacobs lived, and and you know how instrumental she was in really um, in really preserving that area. So that's one of my um, my favorite every year. You know, we have walks through Upper Manhattan, through the parks, and kind of the thicket of you know the 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 greenery up there, looking at you know some of the. Um, the Lenape Indians used to, you know, occupy some of these areas in Upper Manhattan, mm-hmm. and there's an artist named Matthew Jensen, and he looks for all of these little kind of clues as to, you know, what what the Lenape's their lifestyle and what they left behind at that time. So that's a really interesting one. What else do we have on the docket? We have um, a a boat tour around Lower Manhattan, so looking at the city through the perspective of someone, you know, that would have seen it from, from the water and kind of what some of the landmarks are along the waterfront and, and what the situation is with, with um, you know, the resilience of New York City and kind of the, you know, the changing situation with, you know, the, the climate conditions here in the city and what the impact will be on, on lower Manhattan and on some of the coastal areas of the city. So those are a couple, couple examples, but really it's, it's all over the place.
0: The Municipal Art Society of New York long predates Jane Jacobs, right? It's been around since 1893, correct?
1: Yeah, so nearly 125 years. We're coming up on our 125th anniversary.
0: So what makes this relationship so great between the MAS and celebrating the legacy of Jane Jacobs?
1: Jacobs, she really, she really kind of embodies our approach to our community-based community-based planning work that we do. Um, you know, she was really an advocate of of civic engagement, so empowering local citizens to learn about their city and really. Partake in the conversation or feel empowered to partake in the conversation and therefore shape their city so it was really um, she she really represents this this democratizing of city building, which is really at the heart of our advocacy work and and our mandate. We are a membership organization, and we you know we're always looking to engage um, you know citizens throughout the city and and um, promote what we call urban literacy. So this idea of learning about your city and therefore being equipped to partake in in, in the shaping of your city.
0: And as you mentioned, Jane's Walk has really grown by leaps and bounds in terms of popularity. Why do you think they're so popular?
1: I think it's a wonderful opportunity for people to use MAS as a platform to express, you know, their passion for the city, to share their interests, um, and to... To connect with people, quite frankly. I mean, I think um, there's essentially we are providing a platform, the tools and resources for people to, to organize any sort of walk. So there's very few parameters and it's very low barrier in terms of participation. And people can really wrap their mind around the format. So a walking tour or what we've Frame as a walking conversation um, is, you know, is easy to understand and it's easy to, to coordinate as well. So, um, you know, it's really grown a lot through through word of mouth as well. I think people have such a great experience, and um, they're inspired to see their neighbor lead a walk, and then the next year they themselves will lead a walk, and and thereby it, it kind of grows, and has turned into to a wonderful celebration. Um, largest a celebration of amongst the 180 participating cities that celebrate Jane's Walk every year.
0: Now, are the walks all listed online for people to go take a look at and decide for themselves where they want to join?
1: Yes. So there is a an international page where all walks of all 180 participating cities are listed, and that's www.janeswalk.org and there you can you know you can um, sort by borough by theme by accessibility so you can find the walk that's that's just right for you. Jane's Walk is, is the um, launch event to a six-month celebration of Jane Jacobs' legacy, which will culminate in the awarding of a Jane Jacobs medal in Quito, Ecuador, as part of the Habitat Three conference. And so over the course of the six months, um, there are organiz- organizations around the city that have also, um, you know, done walking or doing walking tours and events that, um, that pay tribute to her. And that is, um, that is separate and apart from Jane's Walk and it's another website, um, www.jj100.org, and folks are also free to to enter events themselves, and it's a user-generated kind of platform for folks to explore what's going on um, around the city.
0: Is the name of the individual who will be receiving that medal already released, or is that to no, be determined? No, in fact, we
1: haven't yet launched the open call for submissions. so we'll be doing that um, through our website. And folks are definitely encouraged to think about those, you know, local champions, urban activists that they may know that would be suitable recipients for, for, for this award that continue to carry on Jane Jacobs' legacy today.
0: Stacey, thanks so much for your time. Yes, thank you. Stacey Anderson is the Director of Public Events and Community Engagement at the Municipal Art Society of New York. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boracchi. My thanks to producers Claire Drake and Zach Zalas. Thanks for listening.